Hi, welcome to FizzGig. I'm Wendy Althwaite, and I admit to being fascinated by fizz, the taste, the tingle, and most importantly, the trivia. Do join me. We'll explore the myths and the mysteries of the world's greatest sparkling wines. Full disclosure here, I produce English sparkling wine in West Sussex myself, but this podcast is not about our wine in particular, or even about English sparkling wine in general. It's about the scintillating world of effervescence. I'll pop a cork and cast a pod on the last Friday of each month, and I do hope you'll be with me. Don't forget to listen out for the pudding at the end. It's a little tidbit that, whilst not strictly on point, amuses me. Pop it in your goodie bag as a little fact to take away. So, here we go. TGI Fizz Day. And today, we're going to meet my favourite grand dame of champagne, the widow. About a decade after American independence, in 1789, we had the French Revolution. Reims was then a commercial town of about 30,000 people in the heart of the French textile industry, 90 miles to the east of Paris. And here, an 11-year-old girl, Barbe Nicole Ponsardin, who was the daughter of a wealthy textile merchant, was studying at her convent, surrounded by the aristocratic girls she'd specifically been sent to rub shoulders with. Her merchant family had social aspirations, so to prepare her for marrying into the aristocracy, cozying up with them in the classroom seemed to be a good idea. That was until the revolutionary mob started baying in Reims, because then the daughters of the aristocracy were an obvious target for violence and violation. The Ponsardins were simply not going to allow that to happen to little Barbe Nicole. Quickly, they sent their family dressmaker to the convent with pauper's clothes and wooden clogs to disguise Barbe Nicole and whisk her away unnoticed into the mob and away from danger. This middle-class mademoiselle was rescued. And that's pretty much all we know about her until her marriage. The French Revolution was no big surprise. The preceding decade had been hard. The agricultural economy of Champagne had stagnated, labourers barely subsisted, entire villages were on the brink of starvation, and the long drought and sun-baked land meant that when it did finally rain, the Marne Valley flooded. The winter had been the coldest, harshest winter in a century. Crops failed, peasants starved, and those peasants with vineyards had to pay the local lord a tax of 40% of the value of their grapes for the right to use the village wine press. Resentment was rife. So when news came of the storming of the Bastille in Paris, the mob in Reims was ready to storm their streets. While aristocrats lost their head, Monsieur Ponsardin kept his. Though socially aspirational and a monarchist at heart, at the drop of a hatchet, he immediately joined the revolutionaries and the most radical of radicals at that, the Jacobins, who called for the end of the monarchy. And soon, in a very French way, it was all about fashion. During the French Revolution, middle-class citizens dressed like aristocrats. Aristocrats dressed like peasants. Jacobins were the sans-culottes, who refused to wear the trousers of the rich, were barely dressed at all. As public entertainment focused on the activities of Madame Guillotine, 
ladies ghoulishly cut their hair short and tied blood-red ribbons around their necks. Textile magnets tend to prosper when fashion trends change, and the Ponsardins continued to do very well. Barb Nicole herself just wore simple white muslin gowns, modest, with no ostentation. Jane Austen would have been proud. Barb Nicole was not a beauty. A plain, somewhat dumpy woman, only four and a half feet tall, that's about 1.3 metres, with grey eyes. But none of that mattered because her family had a fortune. In 1798, at the age of 20, she was married to François Clicquot, the son of another wealthy textile merchant who also dabbled in the local wine trade on the sideline. Church weddings had been banned in 1794 and Catholic rites were criminal. However, both the Ponsardins and the Clicquots remained secretly Catholic. So Barbe Nicole married François in a damp limestone cellar, attended by a priest and a small, somewhat anxious group of their family members. There were lots of these tunnels and cellars through Reims, which interconnected and were originally dug out by the slaves of the Romans. They later became excellent climate control wine cellars. François was handsome, well-educated, and played the violin beautifully, which made him attractive husband material. But he lacked commercial nous, had no flair for languages, which is rather important for an international trader, and was subject to mood swings and prone to gloom. He'd been packed off to finish his education in Switzerland, thereby avoiding the draft for military service, even though he was a patriot and eager to go to war. His father intervened to make sure that he didn't, so he spent the war ignominiously stuck in France performing import-export administration. In 1798, Francois joined his father's very successful textile company, but instead of swathing himself in textiles, he was fascinated by the wine trade sideline. The wine trade ran on personal connections. Francois knew the Catier and they bought their wines to sell on. The Clicquots didn't make wine themselves. They either bought it from others or used a courtier to choose wine for them to buy, which they then sold on. Wines were bought and sold across Europe in barrel to be drunk within a year. But Francois wanted to sell it bottled and take a 10% commission on each bottle. There were problems with this plan. Europe had been at war for a decade, making international trade somewhat difficult, and wine didn't travel well. Bottles were fragile. Wine was temperature sensitive and hated the rough handling inherent in long distance transportation. But Francois believed that his military service in national export had taught him how to find his way around a closed port, and reluctantly, his father agreed that he could trade wine when there was peace. So Francois waited. Regular fizz giggers will remember that wine from this region wasn't yet called champagne. That didn't happen until 1860. The wine was a dessert wine, served cold as a frozen slushy, and shockingly sweet. It had 200 grams of residual sugar per litre, compared with typically 6 or 8 grams now. And the Russians liked it sweeter still. It was as sweet as a sauterne, or an ice wine. These wines would be pink-brown colour, called partridge eye. 
The brown tint came from the brandy that was added with the sugar at bottling, and the red tint from the red, or black grapes, when they were pressed. White wines from black grapes were called grey wines, or pearl grey, gris de pearl. It was probably more delicious than it sounds. So, just a quick word about women. Barb Nicole seemed destined for a life of anonymity like so many women of her age. No woman was supposed to have a public reputation unless she was a prostitute, and it may be significant that the two famous women of the time, Marie Antoinette and Josephine Bonaparte, both only famous because of their choice of husband, were labelled whores by the public. But war brings widows, and widows step into the breach and take up the family business until the next generation is ready. So peasant families growing grapes and making wine could be headed by a woman while their husbands went to war. But middle-class women didn't get involved in commerce. Barb Nicole should, according to the Napoleonic Code, focus on reproduction, and she duly produced a daughter. After the 1799 peace, the Napoleonic Empire brought fun, fashion and feasting to replace war, and François was ready. In 1801, he travelled across Europe trying to sell wine. He'd seek out the most fashionable hostess in any city and charm her to flog his wines to her and her friends. Barb Nicole stayed at home and kept an eye on the vineyards. During his trip, François ran into Louis Bone in Basel, a talented linguist, numerate and enthusiastic about the future of the Clicquot wine business. François's selling efforts in Germany and Switzerland had been largely unsuccessful. So in 1802, when France and Great Britain declared peace, François and Louis together headed to London. It was also a disaster. Londoners bought French wines, but not from people they didn't know. Sales depended on access to the aristocracy, and François had no access. But Moet did. So François sold 3,000 bottles of his now nearly flat champagne to Moet for no profit. He had managed to get some orders from wine across Europe, but a freakishly hot summer meant the harvest failed and François had to buy in wine to fulfil his orders. So again, he made no profit. In those times, no one kept reserves of wine because it would go off. Storing it in barrel led to spoilage, either oxidised wines or making incredibly expensive vinegar. Storing in bottle meant that when the weather warmed up, they popped their corks and up to 90% of the wine was lost. Hand-blown bottles with quirky variation of size and shape couldn't be stacked in a stable manner, even with the interleaving wooden planks, and so often fell over and smashed the lot. The mopped-up vin de casse was sold at rock-bottom prices. Misshapen bottles also sometimes meant that the cork couldn't be tied on and the wine would escape, so no one kept wine reserves. And so when there was no harvest, there was no wine. Francois recognised that it was the growers that had all the skills. They grew grapes, blended wines and sold them in barrels, or sometimes bottled them. But Francois wanted to buy and blend the wines and then bottle them himself, because 
bottled wines were three times more valuable than the same wine in a barrel. By 1804, Francois was selling a bit of wine to Austria and Prussia and sent Louis Bonoff to Russia. Unfortunately, commerce was rotten in Russia. Bad faith prevailed and foreign merchants were seen as nanny goats ready for milking. You might make a sale, but you wouldn't get paid. In 1804, yet another war interrupted international trade. And as Napoleon became the emperor and prepared to invade England, another soggy summer meant the harvest was poor. Napoleon and Tsar Alexander squared up to each other so that the Russian market for wine began to look precarious. It was all a disaster. Francois had taken a successful textile company and transformed it into a failing wine business. He then got typhoid and died. Ironically, at the time, the antiseptic properties of champagne were believed to cure typhoid. So could his sparkling have saved Francois? We'll never know. Some believed Francois committed suicide, having made such a horlicks of his business. So it might not have been the typhoid, it could have been the gloom. Either way, Barb Nicole was a 27-year-old widow. And here's where things get really interesting. By 1806, Barb Nicole, despite her lack of business experience and despite being a woman, set up a business. She had her father's commercial nous and had already persuaded her father-in-law to become her first investor on condition that she team up with an experienced business partner, Alexandre Fourneau, for four years. He was a textile merchant but also a winemaker. So this was the second time Barb Nicole had started a partnership in a cellar. Unlike Francois' sales plan, they planned to grow the grapes, ferment the wine, blend it, bottle it and export it. They took control from grape to glass. Luckily, the Clicos already owned vineyards and Francois and Barb Nicole had been given a considerable amount of real estate on their marriage throughout Champagne. In spite of Napoleonic trade restrictions, Verflico Fourneau and company sent out 50,000 bottles of champagne in their first year via small ports acting as savvy sanctions busters. The wine would go via Amsterdam to Germany, Lithuania, Scandinavia and Russia. But sadly, they weren't quick enough. A day or two earlier would have made all the difference. Amsterdam was shut by the British and the wine was stuck, stored in the port and ruined in the heat, and they were also fleeced by exorbitant storage charges. It was a disaster, and they lost the lot. But storing wine is tricky. Regular fizzgiggers know about malolactic fermentation, where the wine is inoculated with a bacteria which changes the malic acid into lactic acid, so the wine has a creamy, buttery, softer taste. Well, if malolactic fermentation hasn't totally finished before bottling, it can reappear in the warmth and spoil the wine, making it cloudy or ropey. And this is what happened to the Forno wines. They were worthless. With more bad news, Louis Bone reported back from Germany that there was no point sending wine there. The ravages of war meant that no one could afford their luxury drink. But on hearing rumours of the Russian Empress being pregnant, he headed off to Russia for the expected celebrations. 
he was immediately suspected of being a French spy, given the ongoing war, and tried to avoid arrest and a Siberian prison. Sadly, the Empress's child died, so there were no champagne celebrations. So Russia was a disaster too. By 1807, a peace treaty was on the horizon and everyone knew that whoever got their champagne out first to international markets would secure the easy sales. Veuve Clicquot Fourneau had to beat Moet to it. Barbnicol considered smuggling the wine as contraband, but it's hard to disguise a champagne bottle as coming from anywhere but France. Louis Bone had built up Veuve Clicquot's reputation in Russia, which was no mean feat given that he had no wine to sell, so when there was a brief lifting of the blockades, 50,000 bottles were shipped via Amsterdam again and arrived safely in St. Petersburg. Unfortunately, conflict killed commerce. No one could pay. The relentless Napoleonic War meant that there, no one wanted to celebrate. Across Europe, business was totally dead. And as their four-year agreement expired, Alexandre Fourneau walked away from Veuve Clicquot. She had been no more successful than Francois. It was a disaster. Barb Nicole's father, Nicolas Ponsardin, who we last saw as a revolutionary without trousers, had had much better luck and had ingratiated himself with the Emperor Napoleon. He'd been appointed mayor of Reims by imperial decree. Arise, Baron Ponsardin! Sadly, on the Champagne front, Napoleon favoured the wines of their competitor, Moet, but also gave an imperial gold medal to Jacques Cousin, who supplied their champagne for his marriage to the Archduchess Marie-Louise. Barbe-Nicole must have been enormously frustrated. In 1810, Barbe-Nicole decided to go it alone and reformulate her company as Veuve Clicquot Ponsardin. Cleverly, she burned an anchor into her corks so that her wines could be identified. It was her trademark. She sold a lot of still wines, red wines in cask in France, and for export, high-end famous French wines, for example from Burgundy, alongside her champagnes. Business still did not go well. Cash flow was a problem. She tried to sell her own jewels to raise funds, but no one else had any cash to buy them and trade itself got more expensive. The requirement for export licences were in reality just a tax on champagne. Worse still, Napoleon's armies mistreated the sister republics they occupied, which meant offering an expensive luxury French drink to a war-ravaged consumer was at the very least a hard sell, and at worst, insulting. The brutalised simply don't buy. And Veuve Clicquot also had some technical issues with the wine itself. Remember, the Clicquots had been wine traders and were only recently winemakers. There were problems with the bubbles. Sometimes they were too big and sat as a foam on the glass. They were called yeux de crapaud, toad's eyes. It was probably caused from the wine's long storage in the barrel and drinking it from coops didn't help. A refined effervescence is a sign of quality, so big bulging bubbles suggested the opposite. But at last, Veuve Clicquot's luck turned. In 1811, the harvest was marvellous. 
a great comet appeared in the sky, which vineyard workers whispered was a portend of the end of the Napoleonic era, and many wine producers, including Veuve Clicquot, abandoned their trademarks in favour of a comet on their corks. But every silver lining has a cloud, and as supply outstripped demand, the wine price plummeted. And here is where Barb Nicole was clever. She bought excellent still wines at knockdown prices and transformed them into champagne. This didn't help her cash flow, but it did give her maturing champagne reserves. It was risky, but she did it. As you know, in 1812, Napoleon invaded Russia. Knowing that Napoleon championed the champagne industry, the Tsar immediately banned the importation of all French wine in bottles, which meant champagne. You can't ship champagne in barrels. No bottles, no bubbles. As Napoleon fought across Russia, burning everything in his wake, and then retreated, France needed more soldiers. This was Mayor Nicolas Bonsardin's chance. He gave the necessary money for troops to the emperor and was knighted in return. A title at last. But troops were not great news for the Champagne region. They amassed on the flat land of Champagne in 1814 on what Napoleon had ominously called a perfect battlefield. Barb Nicole tried to protect her 1811 Comet Champagne by sealing up her cellars and luckily for her, Reims was taken by the Russians, not the Prussians. Unlike marauding Prussians, the Russians were ordered not to loot or pillage. Veuve had gone to so much trouble to get her champagnes all the way to Russia to sell, and now here were Russians on her doorstep ready to buy. She wanted them to love her fizz. Today they drink, tomorrow they'll pay, she enthused. When they returned to Russia, they would champion champagne, the best marketing ever. Russians celebrated Napoleon's abdication in Reims as well, although Vovklicka must have been a little irritated by the Tsar ordering Moet for his celebrations. Barb Nicole knew that if she was the first to get her sweeter champagnes to Russia, she'd beat off her competitors and secure both sales and, more importantly, market share. Desperate for some commercial success, she became a sanctions buster. She exported it illegally, and it would have been destroyed if it had been caught. But the pressure was on. Moet was already in communications with Count Tolstoy. It was a race she had to win. And it was risky. It was illegal. It was uninsurable. Rough seas might break all the fragile bottles. The temperature change might make the wine cloudy or ropey. It might be stolen or drunk. But in the event, 10,550 bottles arrived in Russia in perfect condition, and Veuve Clicquot was there first. There followed a fizz frenzy. Every bottle was bought, and for inflated prices. Veuve Clicquot was a celebrity, and the King of Prussia, no less, also chose the 1811 Comet Vintage for his birthday celebrations. Tsar Alexander declared he would drink nothing else, so the intrepid Louis Bone took lots of pre-orders. News of Veuve Clicquot's success prompted other champagne producers to send wine, which resulted in a shortage of ships to charter, but Barb Nicole managed to get a second shipment to Russia via Rouen. 
Veuve Clicquot became synonymous with champagne throughout Europe. You simply ordered a bottle of the widow. Over time, many champagne houses named their wines widow something, even those that had no widows. Such was the strength of the branding trend. But there was another problem. Now that Veuve Clicquot was fated and had lots of orders, she couldn't produce sufficient champagne fast enough. She'd exhausted her reserves, and if she turned away orders, buyers would gravitate to her competitors. The production bottleneck was disgorging, getting the sediment of the dead yeast from the bottle to leave clear, ungritty wine. Some people tipped the wine from bottle to bottle, losing bubbles and oxidising the wine. Some added a poisonous col to clear the wines, which made it taste bad. Barb Nicole felt she could do better. She reputedly cut holes in her table and leant it against the wall so that the bottles could be placed upside down, sur pointe, collecting the sediment in the neck. Every day, each bottle was turned and tapped, or riddled. Within a mere six weeks, she had crystal clear wine. Quickly, they flicked off the cork, the pressure of the bubbles ejected the sediment from the bottle, and voila, speedy and efficient disgorging was born. Producing much better wine, she kept all the bubbles. And much quicker production meant she was faster than her competitors and could keep her international market share. She swore her cellar workers to secrecy, encouraged by a profit-sharing arrangement, so that she stole a march on her competitors, especially Moet, for ten years. To the delight of the aspirational new Baron Ponsardin, Veuve Clicquot married her only daughter, Clémentine, to the Comte de Chauvigny. He was charming, if a little boorish, but much appreciated the Clicquot fortune. Barb Nicole may have handed over her daughter to him, but she wasn't going to hand over her company, and this became a source of tension. As was money. The Comte was a gambler. Barbnikel indulged him with money and estates and paid off his gambling debts. When she stopped paying off his debts, Comte de Chevigny wrote bad erotic poetry, embarrassing his wife, who was often identifiable. The complete lack of artistic merit of his poetry did not stop publication. A wealthy man can always self-publish his work. So Verve Clicquot quietly bought every copy. So he got his money, one way or another. Veuve Clicquot did not think like an aristocrat. She wouldn't hand over her company to a family member just because it was family. She thought like a businesswoman. She wanted someone good to run her company. Sadly, her top salesman, Louis Bone, had died slipping off an icy bridge. So she turned to George Christian von Kessler, one of her salesmen in Russia. She shocked the world by announcing in her early 40s that she intended to retire and would leave the company to him. However, she later revoked that promise in the summer of 1822, which coincided with the arrival of a handsome 20-year-old German, Edouard Werler. He was her cellar master within a year. Both the Comte of Chevigny and George von Kessler were disappointed and pressured Barbnicol into expanding into other areas. So she started a textile business and also opened the Veuve Clicquot Ponsardin and Company Bank. Both 
would later prove to be costly disasters. As the next financial depression hit hard, and when the liquidation of a bank in which the Clicquot money was deposited prompted a run on Barb Nichols' own bank, she faced ruin. Amazingly, Edouard Verler bailed her out with his own money. And in 1831, Barb Nicole allowed Edouard to buy a 50% stake in Veuve Clicquot Pensada at an undervalue. He was a brilliant business partner, and they went from strength to strength. Russia remained an important market for Veuve Clicquot Pensada and Champagne, and Barbnikov was irritated by impostors using her name to sell their inferior fizz. It damaged her reputation. Veuve Clicquot registered her trademark comment cork to protect her wine, and in 1814 she started using labels for her bottles so that they could be identified. It was a long time later that the iconic yellow-orange colour was adopted, inspired by the yolk of the eggs of the famed Poulet de Bresse. There's been much litigation to protect that colour from impostors. Veuve Clicquot eventually retired at the age of 64, which is not bad, given that the average female life expectancy at the time was 45. She became a living institution, and in much the same way as Louis XIV said, l'état, c'est moi, Veuve Clicquot told her visitors, le vin, c'est moi. She died in 1866, aged 89, perhaps the greatest grand dame of Champagne. You can't help but admire her bold risk-taking, her innovative champagne production, her commercial nous and determination in the face of crushing adversity. She dared to be different. She was a great woman, for her time or any time. Chapeau, madame. Sir, anyone for pudding. You may have wondered why you find roses in vineyards. Historically, they were the canaries in the coal mine. If powdery or downy mildew was in the air, a fungus that attacks both roses and vines, it would show on the rose first and the vigneron could then treat the vines. Roses are less common in vineyards these days, which is a pity because they're very pretty. Modern vineyards may have machines that accurately analyse the air for fungal spores, but the real reason roses have been abandoned is because clever rose breeders have made them disease resistant. So vineyard roses now are largely just for show. Although our vineyard rose, Wild Edric, is a very effective thorny boundary hedge that deters deer. Pretty and practical, but not a disease alarm. So there we have it, Fizzerati. We've explored the brilliant Veuve Clicquot. There's nothing like a champagne dame. And I hope you'll join me next time when we'll be discussing the Italian gem, Franticotta. Until then, may your wine, like your wit, be sparkling. Chin chin.